This podcast is brain powered by the University of Sydney. We are controlling transmission. Sydney Phoenix, Dr. Carl, and Alan G'day there, Daniel Ick here again uh, for my last assignment for this Leak Geeks podcast. Don't worry, Adam and Carl will probably be back next episode. Uh, but this week's, well, this episode's guest is very special. Dr. Derek Mueller is one of Australia's most famous science communicators. You may have seen him on ABC's Catalyst, SBS's Uranium, Twisting the Dragon's Tail, or maybe you're just one of the 203 million views of his YouTube channel, Veritasium. Uh, or maybe you just caught him on stages around Australia with Neil deGrasse Tyson as the MC. Dr. Derek Mueller, welcome to Sleek Geeks Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. It, do you think it's interesting? Um, well, I think it's interesting looking from the outside. We're seeing a generational shift in science communicators. Uh, you're definitely of the new breed. Uh, no offence, Carl and Adam, but you guys are definitely of the old breed. <laughs> <laughs> how do you see this? Uh, how, what What do you think has come? A, what do you think has kind of contributed to this kind of shift in in generations of um, of science communicators? Uh, I guess just them getting older. Um, no, but but really, I mean, uh, new people have to take take the baton and, and run with it. And I guess that's just really what we're trying to do. And there's a whole bunch of new media now that you can get involved with. I mean, in Adam and Carl's day, there wasn't all this social media, and they've done a great job of jumping right into it. And I feel like they're almost part of this this new breed, right? They get right in the mix to the podcast, the Twitter, the Facebook. But um, but I think that's really what leads to this new breed. Do you do consulting for older science communicators? <laughs> <laughs> that is not something I've been asked to do, but I'd be more more than happy to chat to anyone who, who wants to get the word out about science. Well, to, let's talk about your, your YouTube platform, Veritasium. You have hours and hours of content on there uh, and your views are extraordinary. How have you grown that? to be such a, a, I guess, a force for science communication. Yeah, well, I started from zero, I guess, uh, four and a half years ago, and I just started making one video after the next. And it's like, people ask you, how do you get into making YouTube videos? And there really is no secret besides putting a video online and then putting the next one online. And I would always beg my friends and my family to watch it because those are the only people who really I could coerce into viewing my stuff. And eventually, it sort of got a life of its own. So I think it, it was, you know, it's about just being persistent with it. But what drives you to go about pioneering in this new... What, what drives you to kind of go about being one of the first people to kind of do this? Like, what, 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 went, what snapped in your head that went, oh, I should be doing that? I always wanted to be a filmmaker, and, and my early life was about setting up backup plans. So I did a degree in engineering and physics, and then I did a PhD. Now, there I was trying to move a little bit, shift towards the, uh, the film realm, so I was studying how to make films that'll communicate uh, science and actually teach people about physics. But ultimately, I reached a point in my career where I was like, I'm tired of doing backup plans. What I really want to do is make films. I want to do that thing that I always wanted to do, and so I just started doing it. Your PhD is all about making films to help people learn to help people understand science it's got a great title uh, and let me just read it out i think it's i think Please it's do. hilarious all right uh, raising cognitive load with linear multimedia to promote conceptual change that's one of my papers that's one of my papers the the thesis was actually called designing effective multimedia for physics education all oh, right well that's that's much clearer yeah yeah but everyone who writes a phd has a crazy long title like that because you have to be specific it's like well what do i want oh i want that one because it's about you know i, I just kind of i just can't imagine um that being like a very sexy headline oh, oh yeah uh, but but certainly for science people it must be oh people love raising that. cognitive load with linear multimedia to promote conceptual change oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? See, doesn't, that, doesn't that send a tingle down your spine? Yeah. That's big in the science upworthy oh, world. Oh, people love that. Yeah. No, so, I mean, uh, raising cognitive load is hugely important. You're trying to make people think, right? It's, 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 you know, we could translate that into layman speak and say, making people think with a video. How do you actually make people think? Because what people will often do with a video is they'll just like glaze over, they'll tune out, and then they're not gonna learn anything. And that's the point of my, my PhD. What is the secret source for that? Well, for me, for me, and, and I think what the research shows is that you need to engage people with the things they're already thinking. And often they're thinking things which are not right at all. Like they've got a totally different idea in their head and you gotta, you gotta meet them there. Right. You gotta say, like for example, in one of my videos, um, people were saying that your body is converting mass into energy. Right? And as a scientist, that's madness. It's like there's a nuclear reactor inside your body. No, that's not how it works. But I would never have guessed that people were even thinking that unless I took to the streets and I asked those people in person, you know, where does the food go? How do you get lighter overnight? And they're like, well, it's just disappearing inside you. And I'm like, well, really? And there's a guy who says, yeah, your not, evidence? not everything that goes into you comes out of you. And I'm like, well, that would be troubling because you would just keep getting bigger. But, you know. So you start with a misconception. Start, start with what people are thinking. And that can be, it can be a little bit right, it can be a lot right, or it can be a lot wrong. And you got to start wherever they are. And for me, it's about you know, talking to people, find out where they're at. Now, when you do those Vox Pops in your videos, yeah. and, and you hold the straightest face possible yeah. when, when they're I, I do it. I do a bit of nodding, because I like, I like people to feel affirmed. You know? Now, the part we don't see in those Vox Pops is, do you ever correct them? Yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes you do see it. Sometimes we come around to the, you know, the penny drop moment where they really, you know, their eyes sparkle and they get super excited. Um, sometimes, sometimes I don't correct them. I mean, it just, it really depends on the person. Do they seem like they want to know? Do they, do they ask me? If anyone ever asks me, I will tell them, you know, this is the way it, this is the way it works. One of my favorite parts was when you Vox popped a guy and he said that trees gave off carbon dioxide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a guy who was like, they take in the oxygen, they give off carbon dioxide. Trees are one of the original sources of carbon dioxide. And I said to him, so trees are part of the problem. You know, like we'd been talking about climate change. And he was like, yes, absolutely. You know, cut down all the trees. That's what we need to do. So for him in particular, I, I had to stop the interview and just say, look, you know, I think you're getting the gases back, you know, back to front. Concrete the forests and we'll be yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this comes down to a principle that guides you. What, what, what is the main principle of Veritasium? Well, for me, I love this quote by Richard Feynman. It says, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. I feel like that's been such an important and guiding quote in my own life. Every time I come up with, with something, some new finding, I always ask myself, am I fooling myself here? And I want other people to consider that as well. I want, I want people to take that to every little nook and cranny of their life. I want them to think, am I fooling myself here or have I really got at the truth? And do you ever think, uh, do you ever work on your own misconceptions as well? Do you ever sure. feel like that you want to test something that you've been thinking about and prove yourself wrong? Yes, yeah. I mean, like, well, I don't know if this was a misconception I had, but we did this video to figure out whether the water really swirls opposite directions in the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere. And that is something that we just weren't sure would be a thing. Or if it was a thing, we wouldn't necessarily be able to demonstrate it. So that's one where I set out to really test that one and find out what the truth is. I remember that video. It was a great video. You had a, a guy in the Northern Hemisphere and, in you were in the, and you were in the Southern Hemisphere. Here in Sydney. And you yep. both did it at the same time. That is correct. Well, I mean, this is moving magic, right? We, we actually got two videos to synchronize on YouTube, so you got to play them at the same time. Yeah. But in reality, the experiments were
were conducted two years apart because he was super slow. So I did my experiment first, and eventually I went to his house in Alabama, and I said, you were doing this because this is awesome, and we need to, to get it done. Oh, a peek behind the, the curtain of Veritasium. Oh, you just, just destroyed everything well, for I'm me. I'm sorry. But that's, I, that's I imagine you were both on FaceTime flushing each other's toilets. And I thought well, you know what? It was some kind of kinky ritual. I had him on Skype for the very first draining, so that was quite the ritual. And, and The very first draining. Yeah, right? The very first draining of the pool, he was on Skype, he was looking over the pool, that's where I positioned the laptop, and he was just making fun of me because of how basic my setup was. I used a kiddie pool, and I had this bucket and a hole, and I was I had to keep emptying the bucket because that's what I was draining the pool into. It was, uh, it was a rough time. Uh, now, you, you look very healthy. Thank Dare you. I say, you've got a nice glow about you. Oh. Um, are you pregnant? <laughs> Uh, or, not, not that I know of. Or maybe it's some sort of uh, radiation poisoning. Now now we're getting closer to it, yes. No, I did spend about four months last year visiting the most radioactive places on Earth, including Chernobyl and Fukushima, and I got exposed to a fair share of uh, gamma rays. Uh, can you, do you have a noticeable... Uh, can you noticeably tell the difference in, in radiation in your just getting around? Like, yeah, I, can, I, you, can you tell yourself? Or? You can't feel it. You, no. can't, you can't feel a thing. I went to this place where the, the radioactive level was, let's say, 10,000 times what it is in this room, right? And you just can't tell. You, you know, without a Geiger counter, and that's a little bit scary, right? Without a Geiger counter, you'd have no idea you're getting exposed to that much radiation. Um, one of the most amazing things, this is part of uh, Uranium, your Uranium documentary that is on SBS in Australia at the moment, uh, is you went to a, uh, a missile silo mm -hmm. and launched a missile. Right. Well, we went through the process of launching the missile. Uh, you know, the missile thankfully did not take off, so it's it's now a dud. What was what was that like to be sitting in that operating chair, turning that key? What did that feel like? To Can you? I say there was something really disturbing about it, and and partly it was because of the fact it was all like. 70s, 80s equipment. I mean, it was it was nuts the way that you could have started World War III from you know this control panel that looked like you know worse than a super old VHS player. Like it was just it was madness that that was what was controlling the the most powerful weapon on earth. The, the fact that there might be more computing power in your Apple Watch. Oh, there is than, undoubtedly <laughs> there is undoubtedly more a, power in a room full of machinery to start World War Three. Giant machines, but they all look so antiquated and so dated and so 80s. I mean, where was that control panel? So we were in Tucson, Arizona. There were a bunch of missile silos stationed around the U.S. A lot of them were in deserts. So, you know, this one in Tucson, under the, under the ground, you're down at least 10 meters for the control room. And in there, they expect you could ride out an early strike and then you could retaliate with the missiles that they had. And, uh, yeah, just total creepy experience. Throughout um, uh, Uranium, the Uranium documentary, you kind of pulled out your UV light. Um, did you ever feel like you were Doctor Who with a sonic screwdriver? <laughs> it was a little like that because, you know, uranium fluoresces. So you pull out that UV light and that helps you identify wherever it is. Um, what was it like to be to go to those places, that, particularly Fukushima, where recently there was a, a big nuclear disaster? What was it like to kind of uh, uh, jump, uh, to kind of go to these places that have been devastated by, by this kind of disaster. Yeah, well, I mean, Fukushima is really, really upsetting. And, uh, you know, what's more upsetting than, than perhaps the, the tsunami and the radiation is the fact that everyone has been displaced. There's been, you know, 200,000 people evacuated and they're living in these really, really, really tiny little houses with their whole family and they're super cramped and they've lost their community. And to me, that is the greatest tragedy that's happening there. It's the evacuation and, and sort of the crumbling of that social fabric that they had. 
in those communities. Uh, and that's leading to the greater destruction of life than the radiation itself. No one's actually died from radiation poisoning and the levels of radiation are suitably low that they're not gonna cause a, a massive spike in cancer. So really the biggest negative impact on human lives is due to that displacement. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of lives that have been displaced and, and, and changed by this disaster. What is the chance that people will be able to kind of move back to, to Fukushima? I think at some point they likely will. I mean, people are starting to move back to the zone, but in places they're not allowed to sleep overnight. What they're actually doing is scooping up the top level of dirt, and I'm talking, you know, the top meter or two, and they're putting it in bags, and you can go, and, and everywhere you go, you see these massive black bags all stacked around, and they're still trying to figure out where they're going to put them, but those are the really contaminated levels of sto soil. So you get rid of that soil, and then in theory, you know, uh, what you're left with should be fairly low in terms of its uh, radiation dose. I love this idea that you're, you're digging up the contaminated soil, and you're putting it in bags, but you've got nowhere to put those yeah, bags. Yeah, well, you gotta go put them somewhere. And that, that's the big question. Where are they gonna put them? And they, they're gonna find a place, but right now they just don't know. So, you know, yeah. I, it, it'll, it'll happen one day, but for now, it's a really tough situation for everyone involved. How did you get access to places like that? Well, thankfully, I had a great production team that I was working with, and they handled all those details. I think as an individual, I just wouldn't be, be able to do it. But there's a lot of places in the zone you can't go to unless you have contacts with a family, unless you go in with a family whose house is actually there. Mm -hmm. And I went back with this one family, and we saw their house after they hadn't seen it for, you know, a year. And... It's just everything crumbles. It's amazing how, you know, with, without any maintenance, things just start to fall apart so quickly. So you went back with them, and that was the first time they'd seen... They had been back maybe once before, uh, once or twice before, but this was the first time they'd been back in a year, and their whole yard is overgrown, and, you know, the whole neighborhood, you know, this is the place, this is their, you know, where they used to live, their community. And, you know, just so horrifying. It's so, it's so incredibly quiet, and you just... It... it, it it's like this crazy ghost town world, and, it, and it's so eerie because it makes you think about, you know, what would it be like if, if all of a sudden Sydney was just uninhabited and, and you just walk in the streets by yourself. It's that experience of, like, end-of-the-world feeling. Have you ever been to King's Cross after lockout laws? It's very similar. Is it, is yeah, it similar? Yeah, yeah, very similar. Wow. No, I've not been down there. <laughs> I assume. I assume. Yeah. One can only assume. Okay. I've never been to Fukushima. Um, so that was an experience of a recent nuclear disaster. But you also went to Chernobyl. How did the two experiences compare? It was, I mean, they were eerily similar because of what's happening in both places. Nature is taking over. And in Chernobyl, you're seeing like the time lapse 30 years later. And there's forest growing through the main, you know, the whole main street and the main square. It's like you, you drive in and, and you hardly believe that you're in a town, but through the trees, through the bushes, you'll get these glimpses of massive high-rise buildings. I mean, we're talking about a town of 50,000 people, and now it is mostly forest with these crumbling old relics. Super spooky. One of my favorite experiences was going into a theater, uh, and, and it's a massive theater. You can imagine it packing out like a 1,000 people and these incredible plays being staged. They have layers on layers of, uh, of these walkways where people would have been doing the sets and all the props and the special effects and all that. It's super cool looking theater, except now the stage is falling apart and all the tiles are falling off the roof and it's just, you know, this totally disused, you know, been sitting there empty for 30 years. No, no more plays 
Yeah. Have you ever thought about maybe taking staging uh, a play uh, there. doing a Veritasium show live out of Chernobyl? Can I tell you that one of the interesting things about being inside those buildings is that there, there's no radiation in there. The radiation was sprinkled on the roofs and in the forests and on the roads, but it, it doesn't really get in the buildings. So you could be in that building, you could live in there and be pretty well fine, uh, radiation speaking, radiation-wise, but... Uh, uh, you just, I mean, psychologically, it's so hard to be there. They allow workers in, but the workers have to leave after two weeks because there's some kind of thing about being in that place that I think is really unsettling. And so they try to make sure that there's a steady rotation of people in and out so they get enough sort of interaction with other people and, and uh, have a community around them. In uh, making Uranium, what was the thing that you went, oh, wow, I had no idea about? Oh, man, there were so many things that I had no idea about. But here's here's one of the big ones. Chernobyl, it was reactor number four that blew up, mm. right? And and there was so much area that was evacuated that was uninhabitable around that reactor. I naturally assumed that that was it for the Chernobyl power plant. Not so. They kept operating the other nuclear reactors up until the year 2000. Really? Up until 2000, they would train in workers every day to the same Chernobyl nuclear power plant where one of the reactors exploded and they just kept running the other reactors, right? All the same design, right? They just kept running those reactors because they needed the electricity. I mean, this was a massive power facility. What are you gonna do when one blows up? Just abandon the whole thing? I thought that's what they would do. But that's not what they did. They were running the thing up until the year 2000. It's, it's oh my blowing. goodness, I had no idea about it's that. It's one of those very you know, little known facts. If you were an employee in uh, reactor number two, yeah. Do you think you'd still be an employee? You know, I, I would just get out of there, frankly. Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm Hello, not gonna... HR. I've got some problems with the way the workplace is being run. <laughs> I'd like to have a mediation meeting, please. Yes, yeah, I think, I think it would have been one of those. Uh, can I get a super handout? <laughs> Last night I went to see you MC, a great show where you basically chaired a wonderful evening of conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson in front of about 4,000 people in a sold-out Horton Pavilion. Yeah, it was phenomenal. That is incredible. What is it like to kind of... I felt like in many respects that it was a bit like going to church for scientists. Yes. (laughs) I felt like it was like a a Hillsong conference for scientists. And wasn't the worst part of that when the seven-year-old asked Neil deGrasse Tyson, how do you prove the existence of God? I was really biting my lip there because I, I, you know, I uh, biting my tongue. I felt like jumping in and saying, you know, let's not, let's, I mean, Neil, Neil actually started to take her down the path of, you know, maybe there is no God. He started to go there. And I was like, why don't we just say you can't prove the existence of God and you also can't disprove him. It's not a scientific question and move on. But that's why I felt like Neil just loved getting like deep into things all night. And I was just like, Neil, just pull up, pull up, get out of this one. You know, we don't know where the crowd is on this issue. They might turn on you. She's a seven-year-old girl. Just go easy. Uh, Do you think that was a plant? I, don't, I, I think, you know, I was talking to friends after and they're like, her, her parents must have put her up to that. Right. But I don't know. I, my question is, you got to vet those questions because you can't, you can't have someone asking about the existence. And she's seven. I mean, that's just not, if, if, it's, if it's a 27-year-old woman, I'm happy to say, okay, well, you know, I don't think that science is ever going to prove it because it's not a provable, you know. Anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you were, that was a very conflicting for, moment. For a seven-year-old girl, I abort I abort. I pull the eject switch and we just get out of there. Abort might be not might be the right word. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm with you. Um, what was it like to kind of um, uh, 
do what you do on such a great scale, like in such a big room. For I mean, so last night, the key was just uh, ask a couple good questions and get the heck out the way. Because Neil deGrasse Tyson is a force. He is a juggernaut. He is a, you know, this this massive train and you just let him run because, my God, he is brilliant. That's what everyone saw in Sydney last night. Excellent. Uh, and what did you, you have? You become friends with Neil deGrasse Tyson. You're going to get him in a oh, Veritasium Neil I, video. We are besties now. We are we are so tight. Uh, we're going to do another show uh, tonight in Canberra. So I I just can't wait for it. And uh, he's such a, a hero of mine. So you know to be able to do this with him is like a dream. It's like I can't believe this is real life. I love it. <laughs> All right, uh, Derek. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the Sleek Geeks podcast. It's my pleasure to be uh, here with you. I know I'm not Adam Spencer or Carl Kuzminski. I'm just a guy with a if microphone. If I squint a little, I can imagine. Imagine you're both uh, their love child, so, you know. Oh, I'd, I'd like that. Yeah. yeah. That'd be good. I've learned a lot from both of them. <laughs> thank you, Derek. Uh, thank you. Uh, before we go, where can people find you? Find me on YouTube. Uh, the channel's Veritasium. That's Veritas, Latin for truth, plus I-U-M, the ending of an element. So Veritasium, an element of truth. This has been a great crossover podcast. Thank Hasn't you. It? Yeah, thank you. We are controlling I don't understand what's going on here. Sleep cakes.